0: New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre, building on the expertise of over 300 specialists at the University of Sydney for research, education and partnerships in Southeast Asia. For details about upcoming events and opportunities, visit sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney southeast Asia centre. That's centre spelled C-E-N-T-R-E. And by the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned institute For policy relevant research on the politics, economics, societies, and cultures of Asia and the Pacific. For more information, email GAI at griffith.edu.au or visit the website griffith.edu.au forward slash Asia Institute. That's Asia Institute as one word. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. I'm your host, Nick Cheeseman, and today it's my pleasure to be talking with Roderick Broadhurst, a Professor of Criminology at the Australian National University, who is the co-author with Terry and Brigitte Bouhors of Violence and the Civilizing Process in Cambodia, published in 2015 by Cambridge University Press. Rod, thank you very much for coming on the channel. My pleasure, Nick, and thanks for inviting me. What gave you and your co-authors the idea to write this book?
1: I'd have to start back in the early 90s when I was working in Cambodia as a criminologist, working on some problems with the judicial police. So, one of the questions that the Minister of Interior asked was, how many homicides are there and what kind of services do we need to develop to investigate those properly? So that very simple question really started a chain of events, which led me uh, several years later to seek a Grant, which I got from the Australian Research Council, to look at the impact of the UNTAC mission, the state building process or the state reformation process going on in Cambodia and have a look at how that impacted on violence. So when that grant was awarded, I was very, very fortunate to run into a colleague, Terry Bouhous, who was just finished his PhD at Griffith University and was looking for work and I needed a competent French speaker because I knew I would need to, or that we would need to look into the archives, the French colonial archives, to have a long-term view of how violence had changed in Cambodia over essentially a century and a half so, what's the
0: book about? What's the nub of the argument?
1: Well, the nub of the argument really is that, like the situation in, in Europe, there has been a significant decline in interpersonal violence through that whole century, century and a half. And so we were interested to see what kind of changes over time may have impacted on the experience of interpersonal violence in particular. But when, when Cambodia is a particularly challenging testbed for that since it's had all kinds of calamities of all significant episodes in its history from colonialism To rebellion against colonialism, wars of independence, wars that have been produced by geopolitical conflicts, revolutionary violence and so on. Really, if you can think about any kind of mega violent episode, Cambodia seems to have experienced almost all of those forms of state violence. So I guess that meant, initially from my point of view as a criminologist, what can Cambodia tell us about the flows and patterns of violence? Violence in in the conventional sense, that's between the kind of criminal violence that criminologists deal with regularly and also the kind of mega crimes that occur right throughout human history. First of all, what were those patterns? Were they different in some way from the kind of experience that other uh, societies may have documented over time? And were there peculiarities or was there something exceptional about that pattern of violence that might be somehow or other shed at home to some cultural difference, perhaps. So that was the bigger question. The smaller question really was, could we track changes in the pattern of not just homicide but violent crime. And we're also very much aware that after mass conflicts that there are changes in the pattern of homicide in countries post-war and that that pattern of uh, homicide or violence is also worth explaining as well. So it differs from one country to another but we generally understand from the wonderful work of Rosemary Gartner and, and colleagues that actually war often brings with it in the post-war environment a elevated risk of violence, particularly homicide, but it would eventually decline. And so since I'd been working in the late 90s there, I collected quite a lot of data from the Ministry of Interior. And I also was very keen to collect crime records from what we call general household surveys of crime victimization. So I initially, with a group called the Cambodian Criminal Justice Assistance Program, was able to put into the field two significant household studies of criminal victimization. So we'd go to houses all over Cambodia, random sample and asked those households what sort of crimes they'd experienced, uh, what kind of violence uh, individuals in that household were able to report. And so we got a, a reasonably good alternative picture of the kinds of prevalence of crime, at least in post or post-Paris Accords, sort of Cambodia. And indeed, we did notice very, very significant changes in the 20 years that we were able to monitor fairly closely the crime experience in Cambodia. And so that led us to a number of questions as well. Well, and perhaps the most significant of those questions were the kinds of questions that Norbert Elias had been addressing in his very important work on the, if you like, the pacification of the modern state, what he called, perhaps rather controversially to our ears now, the civilising process. But he used civilising processes in a very special way, and some of his critics have attacked him. They read this idea of civilization as some unitary, unilinear perfection. This is very, very far from what he meant by the civilising process. There are a couple of really basic propositions that Elias makes. the the importance of the state, or at least the rising state in the West. In a sense, it is a Hobbesian argument about the contest between warlords, this idea that there are contesting warlords who, through a process of, of elimination, eventually create a state which begins to pacify an area. And that pacification process is absolutely critical. With elimination contests, with war comes peace, and with peace comes the monopolization of violence by the state. That pacification, that monopoly of violence, begets greater interdependence, greater interactions between the expansion of what Elias called chains of interdependence. These chains of independence meant that people could engage with each other without feeling unsafe, and that developed all kinds of behaviors particularly what he would call the interaction between the social structure and the psychological structure, the sociogenesis and the psychogenesis. So this experience of pacification, this experience of not being in a hostile environment begins to change the way our psychology also works. And The third really, really crucial impact of this pacification process is the idea that the psychogenesis, the way we feel, Uh, has an impact on how over time we've become more sensitive to violence. So there's a sensitization process that goes with the pacification, the taming of the state, the rapid expansion of our capacity to intermingle and to interrelate, so that foreigners, for example, don't become objects of fear, they become objects of trade. So the sensitization comes at the end of that process. The joys of violence would become less and less evident. Another way to look at these three interacting sort of forces as functions of two other forces that are in operation, and that's the centripetal and the centrifugal forces within the state itself. Elias and some of his followers, in a sense, anticipated the decivilizing spurts. Elias being, a, of course, a German Jew refugee, his mother perished in the concentration camps. So hence this idea of
0: the decivilizing process that's really an outstanding overview of the theoretical approach that you're working with and Mm. the processes that you're thinking about when you're considering the Cambodian situation. So let's bring those processes into conversation with the data that you collected. Mm. You mentioned that you were looking especially in the 1990s and 2000s initially, Mm. but of course Mm. the book covers approximately a 150 year period. Mm. It covers no less than eight regimes, namely the French colonial periods, the Kingdom of Cambodia, the Khmer Republic, the Khmer Rouge period, the Vietnamese period and its aftermath, the United Nations intervention with UNTAC, and the period subsequently up to the present. Perhaps we can start with the colonial period. Can you speak briefly to what kind of data you collected on that period and what your key findings were?
1: Looking back on it, it seems incredibly ambitious. And of course, the data is incomplete, but there's plenty of sources. Certainly, the colonial arch- archives in, in aix provence and in Phnom Penh. So, the Résident Superior, the-, the French administration, were meticulous bureaucrats, so very concerned about widespread banditry. So, they were concerned to make sure the colonial state did monopolize violence were the only sources of terror, for want of a better word. They were the only source of law in the land, so they were very concerned to stamp out banditry in,
0: I guess, from the mid to the the late 19th century. Early on in the discussion, you emphasized that you had an interest in thinking through the decline in interpersonal violence, mm-hmm. where we're hearing a lot about state violence or violence which is a state effect, as in the form of banditry or insurgency, and those two categories tended mm-hmm. to intermingle. So perhaps you could clarify, mm-hmm. how do you disentangle questions around interpersonal violence from those associated with the state and the effect of The state in generating violence that counterfactually may not have existed. When what's available
1: is court records or or police records, what we look at is not just, we're not talking about individual in the literal sense, you know, one against one. What we do see is what's something we call collective violence, and that collective violence is actually not unusual even in a modern state. The size of the bandit groups that we're able to get details on, you know, they vary from a handful of men. To up to 100. So the scale of them is quite variable. They're not in themselves normally challenging the state. The state itself is not literally being challenged, but of course the state often sees these as prototypical challenges to its authority. From a data point of view, what we're seeing is a couple of things happening in the late in the 19th century, which is important. One is that the French authorities are beginning to take over local policing. So they're beginning to take command of the local militia and the local regional guards and they are beginning to turn them into modern style policing agencies and basically establishing a capacity to kind of reach out from the centre to periphery, meaning that they could guard roads and highways. And so they were engaging much more in the recording of and the pursuit of criminal fugitives. So even though I'm talking about banditry as one of the important remaining significant collective activities that the state really did focus on for the very reasons you're suggesting, but there are, of course, a whole host of other kinds of offences.
0: Let's turn briefly to the early post-colonial period and talk us through from the end of the colonial period to the Khmer Rouge.
1: One of the questions that really worried us
0: when we looked at the Pol Pot period,
1: the 44 months when 21% roughly of the population perished, was what is the prior history? How did it get to be that way and is it so exceptional? Of course, what's crucial to the end of the colonial period was the occupation of Cambodia and Indochina, generally by the Japanese, and the fact that France itself had collapsed against the Nazis. With some connivance on the Japanese, there was a retrocession war, a brief but bloody war between French Cambodia and Thailand over the Western provinces, and so began the so-called Isarak movement, the War of Independence, and did at various times, uh, trouble the French, even though they came back to the cities at various times. I mean, Mare, for example, writes quite brutally about how Bad the French controlled the country when 1951 50 was. But because they were able to manipulate the civil service and so on, they were keen to anoint Sihanouk as the young prince. And I think they may have had hopes that he would be more pliable. And because of the impact of the First Indochina War, did r- rapidly concede independence. Of course, it assumed independence in the 50s under King Sihanouk, but later he stepped down. And as we know, he went on to lead a significant socialist movement and try to make significant reforms in the 50s and 60s uh, through a united sort of socialist front movement. It rapidly became caught up in a couple of things. Number one, the advent of the Second Indochina War, the beginnings of the conflict in South Vietnam, and of course the arrival of the Americans in the 60s. And that did really change Sihanouk's ability to keep Cambodia neutral. Some of his cabinet ministers were communists or left wing intellectuals who were excluded eventually from his government and, of course, then went on to join the Cambodian Communist Party and began their long journey. And so there's a slow decline in the ability of the state, first of all, to monopolize violence and, secondly, to provide sufficient uh, security and economic growth. And they began as well to fear the communists. And so they began also to repress villages that they thought were involved with the communists. The beginnings of the civil war really start from sixty-seven, and then Marshal Lon Knoll, the defence minister in the Sihanouk government, on the urging of outsiders as well as insiders, decided to overthrow Sihanouk as the head of state and you consequently begin the civil war in Cambodia on in full scale. And American support, I guess, of Lon Nol and Sinop being therefore pushed towards the left began his sort of long struggle against Lon Nol and that all replays itself in the post Pol Pot era when you get these complicated geopolitics re emerging again. So essentially what happens is that between 1970, 70, April 75, you have a regime under Marshal Lon Nol which Best could be described as incompetent, but possibly much worse, since it committed many atrocities. But distinctive about that period was the the cruelty and barbarity of the war itself. This is a situation where prisoners were sold and taken, where torture was widespread. So all the sort of habits of a nasty war had already begun to sort of build up. And London all started the regime by the massacre of a Perhaps twenty to 30,000 Vietnamese residents who were living in and around Phnom Penh. So, this kind of ethno nationalism that Ben Koonen talks about, the blood soil combination, already really had been unleashed. And so, by the time you get to April 1975, when the Khmer Rouge eventually took charge of Phnom Penh. An essential sort of hate had been developed during that civil war, and that was the hate of the city and of what was sometimes called the white Khmer. That's distinct from the black Khmer or the rural Khmer, the true salt of the earth. And their hatred, which of course has been stimulated by the war, the bombings, and the fact that they were safe in the cities, weren't being bombed by the Americans. Two factions of the Khmer Rouge arrived in Phnom Penh in April '75, and they promptly begin to evacuate the city and then begins what becomes 44 months of really institutionalised terror, a kind of a prison state and people like Katie Fres and lots of others, Ben Kernan, Vickery and many other scholars have written quite poignantly about this period. And, of course, there was the execution of literally thousands and thousands of former members of the Long Island State. It was just an appalling what we would call in criminology a hemoclysm, a bloodbath, a bloodletting, which just went on and on. So by the time they'd provoked the Vietnamese into invading late in 1978, the state itself had been reduced to a pretty fragile second circumstance. It rapidly disintegrated, and with that disintegration, of course all of the appalling details, S21 and all that sort of stuff, and was it was contagious. And so we, we have this sort of extraordinary event But we can see the build-up of it, and of course we don't have any criminal records in that period of time. What we do have is records produced by the Documentation Centre of killing fields. We have rough estimates, you know, a pretty strong agreement about the loss of life at around about 1.7 million. Perhaps half by, by murder, half by neglect and starvation.
0: Let's pause here for a sponsor's message, and when we come back, we'll pick up with a little bit more discussion around the Khmer Rouge period and then turn to the post-1991 situation. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's S-E-Asia Institute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where we're joined by Roderick Broadhurst, lead author of Violence and the Civilizing Process in Cambodia. Rod, before the break, we were talking about the Khmer Rouge period. What's the distinctive contribution that your study brings to understanding and perhaps reinterpreting that period by adopting a criminological lens?
1: That's a question that really did trouble us, because we know that that period was one of mass violence and state-perpetrated violence did make us think about what the serious limitations of traditional criminological theory, why uh, actually indeed criminological theory hadn't been applied because criminologists spend a lot of time worrying and thinking about violence and how to prevent it and what needs to be done. And I think the essential problem is that partly is because criminality itself is essentially statist. It's very individualistic and it's legalistic. In other words, we tend to assume that the state is benign that the state is out there to prevent violence. So we find it difficult to theorize about a state that doesn't. So what we thought was one of the things that really was helpful about Elias's work was he does recognize the de-civilizing process, the idea that the monopoly of violence can be challenged and it can be lost. The fact that when people feel insecure, the chains of interdependency regress, they become shorter, and people become less tied up in how repugnant and shameful violence is. So that's one element, and that touches on some very important chronological theories that can lend further insight. One of the kind of classic questions that people often ask is why is it that people commit to these horrible acts? How is it that people become instruments of the state? And there are a couple of criminal theories which apply to the broader social psychological point of view. And these are technique differential association or techniques of mutualization. They're typically techniques of neutralisation are not after the fact excuses, they're preparatory views about the behavior. So the classic example would be deny the victim. There isn't any real victims here. These aren't humans or that I'm having to do this because, you know, I'm following a higher loyalty or I'm carrying out some noble cause. There's a tendency also to say, look, you know, our enemies do this sort of thing, therefore we should do it. We call them techniques of neutralization because there are ways that, Normal people can justify abnormal or different behaviour, but what's important is that they're not excuses. They don't happen after the event, they're preparatory. So there's techniques of neutralisation, but also very importantly, there are deeply psychological processes that someone like, for example, Lonnie Athens talks about when he talks about the brutalization process. And what Winton has done is he's looked at Lonnie Athens' work and says, OK, that process that you're talking about, that can be scaled up. So the brutalisation stage is worth briefly discussing, simply because it has, a, a, it has an extraordinary edge to it. And that edge, I think, is about the elevation of the uh, brutalised subject. Now, we know in the Pol Pot regime, in the PKR regime, that there was a lot of focus on having young men and women enlisted in the sort of shock troop element of the KR army and uh, security apparatus. And these children, because they were very, very young, went through this brutalization process that, I, that I'm talking about. So during the first stage of the brutalization, individuals are taught how to engage in violence, sometimes called violent subjugation. So being, being assaulted yourself, being subject to horror, and then the kind of the violent coaching. So there's this process of brutalization. Then at the second stage, there becomes a sort of a what Athens and others call defiant stage, which is when the whole belief system around the use of violence becomes activated, it becomes justified. And then in the later stage is what's sometimes called the violent domination stage. That's when individuals actually commit the acts of violence and if they don't, they become punished or they become ostracised. Former K.R. Carter would often sort of tell us in the most pitiful is that if they didn't murder in a particular way, they were sh- Pretty certain they would be themselves. But you get rewarded for doing it, rewarded for being successful at being violent. And then the next stage is the one that's really important, what Athens calls the virulency stage. This is when individuals actually adopt a violent and dangerous self-image. So they become embodiments of violence. And they in a sense they transcend the normal to become, we would sometimes say, godlike or at least sort of superhuman-like. They become overly impressed with his violent performances and ultimately with himself in general. So violence becomes the persona, and I guess what Winton and others have just simply said is that the final stage is that this this becomes extremely virulent and it then transforms to whole groups. So brutalised groups then tend to perform extreme violence. In the process, the brutalised subjects become incapable of empathy the complete opposite of what interdependence and sensitization. So it's a complete regression of all the things that the pacification process might bring. So there are processes like that that we see in everyday criminological experience when we deal with violent offenders, serial offenders. But in that context, it becomes virulent and it becomes collective activity. And those behaviors do carry forward into peacetime. In our early work in the 90s, I couldn't get over the cruelty. I, constantly confronted by the excessiveness of the violence. But that excessiveness diminishing over time did occur in the 90s for all sorts of different reasons, but essentially because of the monopolisation of violence pertaining of the state to some extent. So there was this slow but gradual decline in both collective violence and also in the savagery of the kinds of violence that we saw in the 90s. And so, you know, you can see these sorts of behaviours building up and creating the capacities for the kinds of mega crimes, mega murders we see. But once you're not rewarded, once you're not supported in those kinds of behaviours, then that process will push on, but it won't last forever.
0: What about alternative explanations mm. for the spike and then decline in violence that mm. you document post 1991? So here I'm thinking comparatively. Indonesia went through a period of protracted violence after the fall of Suharto, and yet we see divergence in other respects between the Indonesian and Cambodian cases. Well, I think there are alternative
1: explanations, but I think you put one clear point out there, and that is that the Indonesian state was the, that period of time a dominant state, whereas in the non- we had a bicepist state, really. We had the old Cambodian People's Party and the Funtzenbeck, the Sianos, in a subdued rivalry. And that played out actually amongst the policing agencies too because you'd have policing agencies competing for control of the drug trade or the prostitution business or some of the rent-seeking that went on. So the, the political context, I know, is well understood. But what we saw when we looked at the official records, the newspaper records, my own personal experience in the field and also talking to Lots of places in different parts of the country was that you got less and less instances of where you got groups of men attacking somebody. You got less and less instances where vigilante action would take place, which was very very common. So somebody would, commit an offence, and sort of enough people there to seize them. They would seize them and murder them, and they would often do that not just in robberies but also in interpersonal contests and quarrels. So you also got less and less cases of extrajudicial killings where police officers would kill suspects or informants or whatever, all those kinds of instances really did decline very, very rapidly, but most significantly after 1998. In a sense, it cascades down. It does have counter spurts as well. So the, the alternative explanation is, is simply that the lingering habits of war are relevant, but also there's the question of just how secure is the state? Is the state itself sufficiently tamed to control its excesses and so on? It's not just simply that the habits of war have finally diluted. There are other things going on.
0: Near the conclusion of the book, Mm. you say that the protracted decline of violence since 1993 is in great part associated with the state monopolization of violence Mm. through the dominance of the CPP, the Cambodian People's Party, and its long-serving leader, Hun Sen. It's hard to pass over a sentence like that lightly when we look at what's happening in Cambodia as of late 2017 with the consolidation of a de facto one-party state and the imprisonment or exile of pretty much anyone who opposes the Prime Minister. So is the book an apology for authoritarian rule?
1: But that's not what we're arguing. What we're really saying is that in the process of dominating the politics of Cambodia, the state to some extent has been tamed. But crucially, it's not tamed publicly. It's still private. This is a state that still is, in a sense like an old private kingdom. The risk, of course, is that in a state like that where there was the sense that the state itself will be challenged, will be an existential threat, the idea of an elimination contest can't really be eliminated from the thought processes of the kleptocratic regime that's there. So they're going to be always on the lookout. And
0: so what we see is a regression. Then it seems to leave me with this trouble around the first of the three processes that you identify and work through the contents of the book. In shorthand, the Hobbesian one, that the monopolization of violence by the modernizing state in the long run leads to pacification. Seems to me again and again in Cambodia that the state is the generator of violence and a lot of the contents of your book are suggesting as much. So how do we reconcile that seemingly counterintuitive finding?
1: That's a very important question. A short way to answer it is that, yes, when we look at the pacification process of the state, the formation of the modern state is a violent process. So ironically, it produces violence, but then it begets a kind of a peace. And that peace does reduce within the state individual violence. The irony is, yes, on the other hand, how is it the modern state can reduce into individual or individual violence so much, but yet seem seems to be the begetter of much more violence? How do we explain that contradiction. I think there's a couple of ways we can do it. First of all, I think the argument in the literature, which I find quite arid, this is the argument that Pinker, for example, Masses or Morris Masses, is that when you look at the proportions of populations that perish due to violence, we can see that the earlier societies proportionately, and although I think the data is not entirely in, is suggestive that so called pre literate societies have higher rates of violence. Yet modern states also produce very, very high rates of actual violence, or if really you like, the absolute numbers are very high. It so happens that portions are low, and so that's the argument. I personally think it's a very arid argument because, yes, okay, we can show that states don't eliminate violence within the state, and we can demonstrate that in all sorts of wonderful ways. But more importantly, the other thing about shifts in our sense of shame and repugnancy is also produces a a hiding away or a camouflaging of the kind of violence that actually does take place. So there's a bit of a nuance there that we don't always pick up. Yes, we do get flagrant displays advanced, violence shameful and repugnant modern states don't like to indulge in that because we're all sensitised to it but that doesn't mean it's sometimes not hidden away so that's one explanation, but I think the key one for me is the one that Zygmunt Bowman argued when he took on Elias in his wonderful book, The Holocaust and Modernity, where he actually raises this very question. He said, Well, how is it that the modern state, which can reduce violence amongst its citizens, can still do these wretchedly terrible, awful mega crimes? And why is it? Is it something about the modern state that makes that the case? And his argument, I think, is very important. And I think Elias' response, by the way, in his very interesting book, The Germans, he addresses this very important problem head-on. Bowman has a point. He relies on the banality of evil, the modern state, how it sort of demoralizes. His argument is that modernity, particularly modern bureaucracies, deprive us of our moral action or our agency. I actually don't like that argument. It's not that I don't agree that bureaucracies can deliver much more death, but I question the fact that modernity is, I think the words he uses, is like a, a moral sleeping pill. I don't like that argument simply because I prefer Eliot's argument, which is that we never are disarmed as moral actors. There's nothing innate about our morality. It's created by social forces, and so our morality can change. It's given over to historical change. And so the fact that the modern state might run over it in some way is not sufficient explanation for why there are these shifts and changes in our sense of repugnancy and shame. So this is an important distinction, I think. What Elias is saying is history shows us that our sense of morality, our sense of purpose, our sociogenesis, capacity for empathy, these are social creations. These are creations that are not wiped out or immobilized by bureaucracies.
0: At a number of points in that response, you were attending to the relationship between violence and modernity. You say that you wanted to study Cambodia to test this theory Mm -hmm. at a non-European post-colonial setting. Yet postcolonial studies offer a very strong critique of the idea of modernity in the post-colony mm. precisely because the colony and then the post-colony does not modernize in the manner that the metropole does. So I'm wondering if you thought about that literature or those critiques yeah. of the application of the idea of modernity to yeah, the post colony That's
1: study. a really good question. Cabinet was a colonial state of exploitation. It wasn't a state for colognes and so on. It was to be exploited. It was not to be developed in any sort of sense other than for its economic purposes. There's no argument certainly made by us in the book that would suggest that the colonial experience wasn't, if anything, but exploitive. Let's just focus for a minute on what modernity when it comes into the colonial world. It's from an Elysian point of view, You know, Marxist sort of a Elysian point of view, is that what happens is that the modern colonial state requires Indigenous elites to run it, or at least to be instrumental in the running of the state. So those elites get educated, they become a mechanism for governance, but they are at odds with the Indigenous elite. So in a sense, although they inherit the colonial state, the so-called modernised elites, that then invites another, if you like, from an analysis point of view, a contest between centripetal and centrifugal forces. So that's one of the reasons why you almost always get post-colonial wars and conflicts, because that so-called modernised elite then is in sort of charge of the levers of the state, but there's still an an Indigenous elite, which is also politically relevant and powerful. So you get contests. Most of those conflicts couldn't be well resolved, and so you have wars of one kind or another. You know, Bauman's using modernity in a very specific way, and so I was responding to, to that, and it's probably easier for me to read that. Pinker's work resurrected trenchant criticism of Elias previously canvassed, amongst others, by Zygmunt Bauman in the light of the Nazi Holocaust and the apparent endemic nature of genocide in the modern world. Bauman, in Modernity and the Holocaust, argued that Elias's processes of civilization was an outdated modernization theory, a unilinear myth of Western triumphalism dressed up as science. Elias addressed these criticisms in his last book, The Germans, they'd been canvassed earlier, where he emphasised that actually these are multilinear forms of process of civility. So Ellis's view that morality and empathy were socially produced and varied across time and place contrasted with Bowman's position that moral behaviour was innate, but modern bureaucratic efficiency overcame animal pity with moral sleeping clothes. So modern states, uh, for Bowman, are rational, technical systems of power which fragment agency and dilute moral responsibility, and in turn give rise to mega crimes such as the Holocaust. Elias observed that state monopolies of violence and taxation over the long term in Europe changed the habitats, leading to a decline in public violence which became associated with feelings of shame. Although internalised constraints on violent behaviour prevail within pacified states, they are not totally eliminated and they are often hidden. This did not eliminate the need for external constraints in steering behavior as the force of the state would reassert when insecurity and danger arose to alter the habitats. So if you see pacification or Ellis's idea as sort of a kind of a linear movement which overruns everything, then that's why you'd end up with a Bowman-type triumphalism. This is not what we're arguing. We're saying we need to focus on at least these three major factors. Is there a monopoly of violence? Are there long chains of interdependence? Is there sensitization to violence? If they are in some kind of flux or in reverse, regressing or progressing, you've got a reasonably good predictor of whether or not you're going to encounter more violence.
0: Can I invite you to give us some idea of what you've been working on since you finished the book? Yes. Well, one of the things
1: I would really love to do is go back into the field and do more of that kind of primary research. I've been recently back in the Philippines. But there, I must say, whatever civilising process that we've been talking appear to be in full retreat, and I do mean that from a strict policing from a multiple point of view. But like uh, other scholars in my world, we have been caught up in the fascinating but challenging world of cybercrime. So I've spent my time recently scouring the darknet market for illicit drugs and weapons and so on, so somewhat removed from this really interesting discussion.
0: It nevertheless sounds like it will be a productive search and certainly an interesting field of study for you. In any case, Roderick Broadhurst, thank you very much for coming on to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies to discuss violence and the civilizing process in Cambodia. Thank you. My pleasure. <laughs> and uh, thanks to everybody for listening. If this episode was of interest to you, then you might also like to check out Duncan McCargo's recent interview on this channel with Astrid Noran Nilsson on Cambodia's Second Kingdom, or Abraham de Swan talking about his book on how and why people participate in mass murder, The Killing Compartments. Those and thousands of other interviews are available free to you from the New Books Network via your browser or iTunes. Okay. Hey, like I see
1: Hey, thank God she got the turn to vote.